Hello and welcome to Biting Talk with me, restaurant critic William Sitwell. I'm a food writer and author, and this is Britain's liveliest food and drink show. On this episode of Biting Talk, we meet James Grundy. He's the co-founder of the Small Beer Brewing Company. He reckons that his low alcoholic beer is as good, if not better, than the real thing. Hmm, is that true? If you're a lover of craft ale, can he tempt you with his promises of a wonderful night of beer? but no hangover. Then we speak to Simon Rogan. Of course, he was the founder of Long Clume up there in the uh, Peak District. He's just opening his exclusive chef's table concept, Owlis London. This is a man with many strings to his bow, many restaurants at his fingertips from the UK to Hong Kong. How is Simon Rogan coping? When I last spoke to him, when I last interviewed him back in January, he says he was a calmer man than he'd ever been before. I wonder if, if COVID-19 has stressed him or is he back to his good old calm self? We'll meet Simon Rogan shortly. Um, Rebecca Mascarenas, she is one of the leading restaurateurs of this country and um, her chef partner, Phil Howard, might have a higher profile, but in the hospitality business, she really is one of the queen bees of the restaurant sector, but not any old sector. Her patch is neighbourhood restaurants. I'll be asking Rebecca what it is that has enabled some restaurants to survive and other restaurants to go under. We'll chat to Rebecca shortly, and we'll be chatting to Farhad Haydari, catching up with the Biting Talk mixologist, as he mixes a PLB. What is a PLB? What does it stand for? I do know that there's limoncello in it. That's all coming up on this edition of Biting Talk. But first of all, it's time to speak small beer with James Grundy. James Grundy, welcome to Biting Talk. William, it's great to join you. The idea of low alcohol beverage, was this something that came to you as a student? Surely not. You must have been as much of a beer swiller as the rest of everyone. <laughs> My business partner and I were in the drinks industry. Uh, I was at Sipsmith. Uh, he was at Fuller's. Um, both very often found ourselves scanning the pump clips and watching the strength of beer do this. Originally, the sort of continental beer, the 5% premium lager. And then latterly inspired by the American craft movement, 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%. Flavor profiles, fantastic. Hangovers, equally spectacular. And we said, both as busy uh, men with, with, with families, that um, it was often so, so many occasions, great occasions, social lunches, a couple of pints together after work, where you wanted to enjoy good beer. You just didn't want to be suffering for said enjoyment the next day. The, the bleary-eyed consequences, that's like dusty feeling that you have. And as you scanned those pump clips, there was just nothing. There was nothing that allowed you to really enjoy a fantastic pint or multiple um, without feeling the effects. But part, I have to dispute that partly because part of the effect of, of drinking is, I mean, forget the hangover. When the alcohol seeps through the veins, that first sip of booze, I mean, I, I love it. I love it. And your, your invention denies us that experience. I'm not sure it denies. In fact, I drink beer because I love the taste of good yeah. beer. Yeah. And, but I love the taste of good beer on a Monday evening when I'm rustling up a bit of dinner. And let me put this one to you. Have you opened that fridge, reached in, been confronted by a 7.5% double dry hopped IPA? Interesting. Monday, 
but I still want to have a good beer. And it shouldn't be, should be, you know what, great. And you still get that beautiful, refreshing, um, great beer drinking experience. So tell us, how does the the manufacturing, the production of low alcohol, because we're not talking zero alcohol, we're talking 2.8% or something, what is the fundamental difference in the production of it? Um, what are you doing? Where does the booze go? Have you got it in a cupboard somewhere? How does it work? So what happens is it's about controlling the quantity of fermentables that go in at the front end. Um, and we've actually redesigned the brewing process. I don't know if you've done a bit of home brewing yourself, but historically a really efficient brewing day would have been about taking X amount of grain and producing the largest quantity of, of alcohol that you, could, that you could possibly do from it. Um, eight, 10% beer, and you'd pat yourself on the, on the back for successful days brewing. So it was about alcohol creation from a base. And we really flipped that thinking on its head and we said, actually, how do we maximize the flavor profiles that are delivered by each ingredient, but really minimize the alcohol that we're producing throughout the brew? And actually, we've done that at every stage of the process. And it starts in the mash tun, as I say, controlling the quantity of fermentables that go in. Um, it gets down to the intricacies of pH balance and temperatures that you're mashing in at uh, and, the, and the quantity of fermentables that you're looking to extract. What it's not is um, cutting the fermentation short, killing yeasts, none of that. Uh, we have a typical, a standard fermentation of five to seven days, actually followed by a very long Lagering processes, no to yes, lagering yes. and store and oh, oh. lagering that aging, that maturation. We've actually gone back to what it would have been, which is a minimum for us of six weeks. Uh, it allows it allows the yeast and the proteins to drop out naturally. It avoids the need for finings. Um, so it's almost it's, it's very much uh, zero intervention. And I think now because of time pressures on brewing, particularly. Uh, and brewing efficiency, we've actually increased the amount of intervention right across the industry. So if anything, we're, you know, we're, we're harking back to how it was once done. And there has been an interest, as I was saying earlier, um, in low alcoholic beverages during lockdown, uh, which may surprise people because people might, might have thought locked in with your family, people are drinking more. Um, did you personally see your sales increasing? And why do you think that happened? Well, it's interesting that you say just through lockdown, because obviously small beer is historic. 16, 17, 1800s, people drank small beer as the alternative to water. It was deemed far safer than water at the time. I mean, Dickens and Shakespeare wrote a huge amount about small beer. Uh, it was enjoyed from school children right through to high society. And the upper limit was set at, at, at 2.8%. So they say at 2.8, the water alcohol content means the body hydrates quicker than it dehydrates. Once alcohol passes, that becomes diuretic. You start to dehydrate quicker than you hydrate. So uh, it's not a new thing, small beer. Uh, it's very much rooted in history. But as you say, we make it for today. And, and I think we've seen that incredible increase through lockdown because people have been juggling a million and one things and actually trying to strike a bit of a balance. Um, homeschooling on a hangover, not a lot yeah. of fun. Um, <laughs> If you know you're up early before the kids because you're trying to get a couple of emails in before they wake or a couple of hours worth of emails, you just don't want to be doing that feeling a little bit 
groggy. And I think a lot of us now are trying to strike a better balance when it comes to health and well-being. Lower alcohol, you mentioned a couple of them at the very start uh, of this evening's uh, sharing, is, is uh, typically lower in, 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 in calorie content, typically lower in sugar, um, uh, to be lowering carb, and that's before you and talk about the alcoholic units as well. Yes, and and which leads me on to the, the next question, which is, um, how does that affect? Is there a lowering of tax? Do you get taxed per ABV? Because I don't really understand this. Are you uh, are you making more money than your alcoholic beverage competitors because you're paying low duty, lower duty? We do pay low duty. Yeah, we do. Uh, duty is on a ladder, laddered system. So if you make something at um, 2%, you pay less duty than something that is at uh, 4% or indeed a gin at 40%. Yeah, so those, those, those nutters making grappa. You know? <laughs> um, in terms of then, your, are you charging the same amount as you would get for a normal beer? Because I think this is what people are so astonished by and thought, when Seedlip first came onto the scene, they thought Emperor's New Clothes, why would I spend the same amount on something without alcohol? Where are you competitively in the marketplace with your pricing? We're, 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 we're at a price parity. We absolutely are. We, uh, I think there's a couple of things there as well. I mean, one, we actually use twice the amount of ingredient per percentage point brewed. So although there are savings on duty, there are increased costs when it comes to actually ingredient usage and the quality of the ingredient. Um, industry standard now for a beer in vessel is three to four days. We're talking about a minimum of six weeks that we're tied up. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a heavy investment in the production process. And you can't brew our beer on any other kit. So it's not like we can contract brew our beer out. Now, although there are savings made on duty, there are increased let's say, costs that come with the, the ingredients that we, we choose to use to deliver a really phenomenal tasting beer at a lower strength. Would I pay more um, or the same? Would I pay the same to have a really fantastic beer, an evening of great beers with friends, a social occasion, albeit distant at the moment, and still wake up with a clear head tomorrow? Yes, I would. And I think there's a really, there's, I always say, and, and I, I said, there's nothing quite like the feeling. It's not a smugness, but it's almost this sense of dodging, but nothing quite like the feeling of waking up having had a fantastic evening drinking small bit, pints of. I get your point. I get your point. There are merits to having hangovers, and a nice hangover I quite relish, actually. If you, if you did choose, final question, uh, an alcoholic beverage, what would it be? I used to work in the wine industry, William, so I, love, I still love my wine. Um, I, then gin after that, you know, so I love a great, a great classic cocktail, of one at Weldster, Dan Martini, but if you were to ask me, if I wasn't drinking small beer, what would I have? I'd have a lovely chilled glass of sherry. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, it's been wonderful catching up with you. One final question before we go. Um, select one of your drinks as a, as a perfect pour for, a, for, a, for a, you know, a coolish but sunny evening. I would select our small beer session pale. Perfect sunshine beer, juicy, tropical. Uh, a little grapefruit hoppy bitterness on the finish, but so, so balanced for a pale ale. Fabulous drop. Good stuff. Um, James Grundy from Small Beer, thank you so much. Great pleasure talking to you. What a pleasure. Thank Thanks for having me. All the best. I wonder what Simon Rogan thinks. Is this a low alcoholic man? 
the end of service. Simon, welcome to Vice Hello. Talk. How are you doing? Very good to see you. Um, uh, are you a low alcohol beverage? Would you reach for a small beer of 2.8 ABV after a long, harsh day of service? Or do you need alcohol coursing through your veins? I need that strong kick, yeah. And after that little discussion, rather than going to Long Clume for service tonight, I think I might go to the pub. So uh, very interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm a, a full-bodied, uh, flavoured beer man. Okay. Um, tell me, are you down uh, on the Sussex coastline? No, I'm in sunny Cumbria. Um, I've been here since we opened the uh, restaurants, July the 4th. Um, I've had to be because uh, we've opened with, with a bit of a bang. And uh, well, I've never I've never seen it so busy, to be quite honest. So uh, I've been pretty much needed up here. And uh, so it's, it's been uh, nonstop every day. Now, we chatted a few months ago at the beginning of the year. And uh, I was quite intrigued in your, you know, the way that your business has grown and your your exhausting commute from London to Sussex to Hong Kong to Cumbria, um, lockdown must have been a bit of a relief for you, I suppose, where you actually didn't have to move or, or did, had you become a, a chefy travelling addict? It was kind of weird because you just saw your diary disappear, uh, a full-up diary um, before your eyes. Um, not only do we have gigs in Hong Kong to, to fulfil, uh, we had something going on in Thailand. We had a residency in Sydney, Australia. You know, we pretty, pretty much had a, a, a chock-a-block year. So for it all just to disappear like that was 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 pretty bizarre. Um, to be quite honest, I was quite happy for a little bit of the rest. Uh, it, it was really, really nice to catch up on things, re- reflect on things. Obviously, we kept things going in Cartmel. Uh, we we run a farm, so we had lots of produce that was going to be, be used for, for the restaurants, which was no longer you know, of use. So we come up with the idea of using that produce to provide meals for the, for the elderly, you know, for the, for the you know, essential people that carried on working, hospitals, you know, things like that. So we kept that going. Um, unfortunately, we, we were in a position, we didn't really have to lay off any staff up here. Um, we kept everyone going, you know, all the management took a big pay cut. Well, actually, I didn't get paid at all. Um, just to keep your staff together. And then luckily enough, the furlough scheme came along and, and helped us out a little bit. So we've opened up with a full team, uh, not lost anyone. And, uh, you know, they've obviously done, been chomping at the bit to get back and, and try to catch up where we left off. Uh, and it's been uh, pretty uh, pretty amazing to see the team back together and, and smashing it, which is... Yeah. Very hot, very honey. And great to hear that you, you've, you've got off to such a, a flying start. It's 18 years since... Long Clume opened, um, 2002. Does that feel like a distant memory? Um, does it feel like you were doing an extraordinary thing all those years ago, a 20-course tasting menu uh, in a town known for its toffee rather than anything else? Or um, does that still feel as you know vivid with you now? It still feels pretty vivid, to be quite honest. Um, you're right, it has been a long journey. It doesn't feel that way. But, um, you know, I'm very happy with the way things have gone. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, it's been a massive journey. And I think we've got to a point now where, you know, we're, we're in a position where, you know, we, we're well established within, within the area. And uh, we are what we are because, I've, well, I've come to terms over the years that we are what we are. And we, we have what we have because, because of where we are. You know, it could be quite easy to open in the middle of London um and, and have instant success and probably greater success or more financial rewards but you know it's uh 
it's been very much a journey and I believe that, you know, we, we, we you know, owe everything to where we are. Yes. And I'm always intrigued by the idea of Aulis London because it always seems to me to be a great idea for the, you know, particularly in a, in a city like London, a city like Hong Kong, where you replicated it. It's an idea you see in, you've once seen in New York, tiny little dining rooms, eight to 10 people. Um, uh, are you, are you, do you feel that there's the need to bring that back? I mean, I know that you are. Will that be a struggle to fill those tables? And are you surprised that no one else seems to have done it? Because I would have thought that once someone like you did that, Heston might have done it. Other chefs might have done it. Well, there's, I think there's a few coming along now, um, a few coming up and a couple of guys that, that have opened up similar places since we since we opened the doors. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really good, especially now, you know, if you've got a social bubble, and you want to go to a restaurant where, you know, you've got the restaurants yourselves, then it's great. It's got eight seats. You know, the restaurant's yours. And, uh, you know, obviously personal, you know, involvement from the chefs, you know, working my restaurants. I've got, you know, hands-on knowledge of everything that we do and how things are made and, you know, the history and, you know, everything about the dish or the, the menu. Um, it's, a, it's a perfect situation for this, this, this time. Um, we were... A little bit fortunate we appeared on a show with uh, Zac Efron over, over lockdown on Netflix, which obviously uh, boosted, boosted the, uh, the, 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 the um, reservation diary somewhat. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, that, that, that's helped. But like I say, it's, uh, it's a very manageable unit. Um, we can offer the highest uh, standards of safety, not only to my staff, but to, to the guests as well. Um, and it's it's a perfect environment to go out and eat, I think. And and as a chef and someone who you know loves the the craft of cooking, and as someone who has a farm, how do you balance that between you know? As we all know, you grow a business, you become a businessman, you start. It's about a product, and it's about managing people. How have you managed to you know retain your 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 job at the stove to keep keep your hands on the tiller of the of the actual food element of the business? Or is it a constant torture where you wish you weren't talking about numbers and you could talk about suppliers and look at ingredients as they come through the door in the morning? Um, well, you mentioned at the top of the programme, uh, you know, spoke to me at the beginning of the year when I was quite chilled out. Um, obviously, we've, we've, a lot's happened since then, but I'm still relatively chilled out because I've still got the same people I've got around me as I did then. You know, the, you know Sam, my managing director, he looks after all the financials. He takes the pressure off me with, with all the sort of top-end management decisions. And then I've got my generals, my Tom Barnes, my Paul Bagheliers, you know, uh, Liam at Rogan & Company, um, uh, Brian at uh, Henrock, um, or now it's uh, someone else that we've got in charge up there as well. Um, so, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've got good people working for the company. Um, they take a lot of the pressure off me and, and I, I sort of, Sort of go and do as I please, really, from now on, which is which is really really pleasant um, and really enjoyable. And, and why not? And we, the, the question popped up a second ago on uh, on on Instagram. Um, eat out to help out. I mean, I said at the early at the beginning of the show, there's something like uh, 25 million um, extra meals consumed. Um, have you taken advantage of this? Are you enjoying it? Is it has it made the weekend suddenly at the beginning of the week and then quieter at the weekend? Overall, I'm sure Long Clum is packed, but what's your general feeling about it? All our restaurants in, in the lakes have been full since they reopened, so we've not, we've not actually joined the schemes ourselves. Uh, Long Clum and uh, Rogan & Company, 
They opened on the 4th of July. Uh, yeah, they've been full ever since. And uh, Henrot opened three weeks ago and that's been full as well. So we've not had to take the option in, in, in Cumbria. Uh, London as well, obviously. Has been a has been a bit of a boost with the with the show on uh, with with Zach um, and you know the the, the actual um, concept of Aulis being a social bubble restaurant. Uh, Roganic obviously we're we're keeping an eye on at the moment. We've not opened that back up yet. Uh, we still believe that the business isn't quite there for that to to to, to reopen at the moment. And we can, as a company, we can support ourselves with, without having to open that. And we find uh, other jobs for the staff to keep going uh, elsewhere. So we'll keep an eye on that, but you know we'll, we'll wait and see for that. Final question: How on earth does anyone get a reservation for our list? Um, in advance, really. Uh, How far in advance are people booking? Um, I think there's still a few. T- we, I mean, we we didn't really know we were going to open um, in August, so it's been a bit of a sudden thing. So I think there's still a few reservations left for the end of August. So I think September and. October's getting pretty full up, so probably two months. I think uh, you know if if you if you're quick, you should be able to get a table, uh, a place. Sorry. And I said that was the last question, but I must ask you: What's the one thing that keeps you awake at night now? I mean, because the restaurants are booming. I mean, you know, well, you know, they're, they're busy. Um, what's what's the what's the thing that's worrying you? That, that... Well, the worry that everything could could blow up again really um obviously you know we're, we're we're flying at the moment but that could just be really cut short and uh from our experience of hong kong as well you know the restaurants have been flying out there um but um since we've come out of lockdown they've had a bit of a a backward step and we've not been able to open for dinner um so there's been a period where we've not been open at all right uh, luckily we've been we've just launched the simon rogan at home uh branch in in hong kong which has gone absolutely bananas um, like we've done in the UK as well. So we've been maintaining our business levels with that, but it's case in point that anything can happen at any time. So that's the one thing we're all wary about as a group. So we, you know, we try to do as much as we can when we can, because we know it could be all over within a you know, blink of an eye. Simon, we must leave it there. Uh, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on Bison Talk. Best of luck with the business. And Thanks, thanks very much. much. Cheers. Great. Thank you so much. Here she is. It's the queen of the neighbourhood restaurant, Rebecca Mascarenas. Welcome to Biting Talks. Very nice to see you. And you. A low alcoholic beer for you, madam? I'm, I don't like beer, so no alcohol, no alcohol, not for me. Glass of wine, glass of champagne, I'm there. Now, I'm fascinated by your career and it's lovely to talk to you because, as I said at the top of the show, people sort of forget about the, the, the important dynamics and, you know, the, the most famous restaurants of all time are all these, you know, the, the places that glitter with lights and so on. But the neighbourhood restaurants is the is, is really the cornerstone, isn't it? Because it's where we love to go. It's where we're known. And so often, neighbourhood restaurants are the places that are owner-run. They're less likely to be part of chains. When you edged into that world, I mean, I know you started as a waitress and quickly became a manager. Did you think to yourself from a business perspective, I want to work in, in neighbourhood restaurants because I think that there's, there's money to be made there and it's a really exciting sector? I never wanted to have a West End restaurant. And when I opened Sunny's, my first restaurant, which unbelievably was in 1986, 
There were virtually no restaurants outside the West End that you wanted to go to. But I took a gamble that, yes, you just wanted to go somewhere that was local, that was good, um, that was affordable. And the property was affordable. Uh, we didn't have any investors. You know, the whole idea now that you cannot open a restaurant without massive investment didn't exist. Uh, my mother remortgaged her house to lend me the money to open our first restaurant all, that, all those years ago. And it was great. It was fun. We loved the people who came in. Thank God they love, seemed to love us because 34 years later, we're still here. Yes. And, um, that, you know, 1986, Sunnies, um, which you turned into Church Road. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, with Phil last year. Why did you decide to make that move? Had you got bored of the way it was? Because I mean, I think, you know, 34 years, we were like a dinosaur restaurant. It has to be said, you know, I can't think of many restaurants that have lasted that long. It felt like it needed a new broom. It felt like it needed a a real shakeup. And we did. We put in a private dining room, which is, you know, interesting that Simon's got his own uh, um, uh, individual restaurant. All our private dining rooms are doing really well because people want to stay in their bubble. You know, for a family celebration, two families get together, it can easily be 10 or 12 people. Yeah. And it's great to have that space. Yeah. And as someone who's firmly on the financial side of restaurants, you know, for a young person going into the business, um, when people ask you advice, young chefs, you know, what are the kind of key pointers? Because it's such a precarious industry. Being a restaurateur, you have to have so many different talents and and. You know, not everyone who's a great chef, who knows how to arrange decor, who can manage people, can do the numbers. Um, what's your advice to people who, who, who are worried that their talent doesn't include adding up? Take a good partner. Either have a good partner who, who you will listen to. Quite often, young chefs don't want to listen to their business partners. And... Be realistic. Be realistic what you can afford. Be realistic about the type of establishment you want to open. If you want to open a punchy restaurant, then you have to have investors. Yeah. And that, that's a different ballgame. Phil and I have never wanted to have investors. We've done all our growth has been organic, yeah. which has been great because we've both had long, long careers. And so far, successful careers. Yeah. And, 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 you, and Phil, you and Phil Howard, of course, have got... I think three places um, together. He's got his place in the Alps as well, and you've got your place in in uh, in Putney. The financial side of things, I suppose, is also possibly depressingly the one thing that comes front of mind during lockdown because places were going bust. It was no longer the conversation about wherever you eat in it. So it was a conversation about who's who's gone into administration. Um, I know it's been shocking. Do you, because you're in the financial side of it. Did, did that awaken some ideas in you? Did you sort of suddenly think, well, actually, it is about the money. The money is important. How, how did you, when you saw these places going bust, did you think, well, there but for the grace of God, or were you pleased that you weren't, you're not involved in a huge chain that was teetering on bankruptcy before COVID even began? Well, th- that's the key phrase. Where were you before COVID began? So we were in a very healthy financial place. So... It was scary and it continues to be scary, but we never faced a black hole. We also issued restaurant bonds and we were absolutely staggered at the take up. 
Right, that's fantastic. Our customers essentially um, forward pay us money in, in the pure belief that we would reopen and still be here. And that kind of faith, I think, only comes with neighborhood restaurants and investing in people that you do know really. Of course, the nuisance in that forward paying is that the punters come in and then you've got to remind yourself they're not going to pay that much. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. You built that into the cash flow. That's absolutely fine. We know that. But they've got 18 months to spend the money. It's a long time. Yes. Um, does Phil Howard allow you to uh, make comments about his menu? Actually, he always sends them to me in advance. Does he? Does he? So we look at them. I'm not sure that he pays much attention to what I say, but he does send them to me. But he's he's polite anyway. Right. Yeah, very polite. And of course, he is a genius menu writer. Yeah. Yes. Now, how are you feeling about hospitality in general? Um, there's so much conversation about this. We watch Katie Nichols with bated breath every time she utters, uh, opens her mouth and is a great fount of wisdom, wisdom and also a great uh, campaigner for the business. Um, it's great to see people like Simon Rogan booming. Plenty of people are going bust. Generally speaking, at the end of 2020, how do you think, will the restaurant scene have changed beyond belief? Or do you think there'll be more recovery than people might have thought a few weeks back? I think recovery will be slow. As I said before, I think it really depends on where you were before, the, before COVID. You know, a lot of people... COVID will just be the one thing that tipped them over the edge. Um, would they have gone under? Possibly. Um, I think the restaurants that can be nimble on their feet, adapt to their customers, will probably survive. But equally, I think landlords and overheads yeah. will pay, play a very, very big part in whether restaurants succeed or don't succeed. Some landlords that? have been... Our landlord in Barnes has been fantastic. Our landlord in Putney has been pretty fantastic. Uh, others have been less fantastic. But in the, in the end, we've all got to be realists. Are you able to go to a new restaurant that's nothing to do with you and enjoy yourself? Or do you end, are you forensically looking around going, well, well that, they won't make money out of this, or that's a crazy idea? Or William, I've always done that. Before COVID, after COVID, during COVID. My children have sometimes refused to sit with me when I turn a plate upside down to see where it came from. Uh, exhausting. You know, they have to remind me it's not my restaurant. I, I'm always interested. I'm always learning things. I love going out. I love restaurants. And how big can the Mascarenas empire be before it teeters and collapses? Is there a perfect size for a restaurant business? Is it? I think mine, mine right now is the perfect size. We've got fantastic general managers, really fantastic. They work well with me. I work well with them. They work, you know, we all work well together and they run their own units. And that's for me, I don't need to be any bigger than that. And, and do, you, do you get a bill when you eat in your own place? Sometimes, not always, <laughs> sometimes. I think so too. Uh, Rebecca Mascarenas, thank you for coming on Bison Talk. Really great to catch up with you. Fantastic to have the, the queen of neighbourhood restaurants on, on the show. Best of luck with everything and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. Bye. Uh, here's a man who I don't think he'll be turning uh, his hand to some low alcoholic cocktails because he's our mixologist himself. Welcome, Farhad. This week's cocktail is a delicious lemony concoction called the PLB. 
It stands for Polini Lemon Bitters, and Polini, of course, is the famous limoncello, which is the central ingredient, in fact, the hallmark of this very, very refreshing and zesty cocktail. Let's take a quarter of a giant Sicilian lemon and muddle that into the base of a Collins glass, after which we're going to top it with some ice and then add 40 milliliters of the aforementioned limoncello, along with two dashes of the Angostura bitters. Add a bit more ice, and then fill the glass with tonic. Ideally, fever tree, 105 milliliters of that goes in. Give it a light stir, you don't want to get rid of all the bubbles, and voila! You have a long and refreshing drink that is tarty, lemony, and extremely refreshing as you head into the weekend or on a warm late summer's day. That's the drink this week. Back to you, William. Well, thanks, Farhad. Yes, maybe, maybe you've managed to convince me to try limoncello, or rather, uh, not just to keep it stuck at the back of the cupboard. Maybe I'll get the limoncello out and make a make that little cheeky drink. Thank you very much. Farhad Haydari on terrific form. Uh, that's all we have time for on this edition of Biting Talk. My thanks to James Grundy, to Simon Rogan, to Rebecca Mascarenas, and to you for listening. This is William Sitwell, and this is Biting Talk. Biting Talk is a front ear production. Please do subscribe, rate us, give us five stars, and I look forward to welcoming you to another edition of Biting Talk. <laughs>